right, we have no announcements tonight, so mark it down on the calendar. It's a banner night. Yes, we need to pray for Israel, yes. And, um, yeah, if you uh, are uh, inclined in such a way, although most of us live in conservative congressional districts and we have two extremely pro-Israel senators, but I continue to get emails from APAC to encourage my community to contact their representatives and their senators to, to encourage the you know Congress to stand fast behind Israel right now. So we need to pray for them because the propaganda coming out from Hamas, you know, the usual lies is they hide behind women and children, and then when the women and children are collateral damage, they blame it on Israel, and it's really their fault. But we live in a world where truth is a scarce commodity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are spiritually prepared to worship as we study the word this evening. As we focus upon the Lord, we need to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit, and that means confession of sin if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege to come together this evening to just reflect upon your word and for God the Holy Spirit to remind us of things we know and to teach us new things. Father, we pray for these, this world in which we live. We are ambassadors from your heavenly court to this world, and we are to represent you and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we have lived in a nation that has honored you and has understood the, that we are grounded and founded upon a Judeo-Christian worldview. And yet that foundation is crumbling because of the rejection of your word and rejection of truth. And we see this reflected in many, many different circumstances of nations down through history, but especially during this time period of the judges that we are studying and we pray that we might learn some principles that are encouraging and strengthening as we study our way through this book. And Father, too, at this time, we continue to pray for Israel. We pray for those who are missionaries in Israel. We pray for a number of different organizations that, have, uh, that are messianic, uh, filled with messianic Jewish missionaries who are giving the gospel to those with whom they serve in the IDF, the IAF, and in other branches. And, Father, we are also uh, praying for those who are just witnessing to their neighbors and to those in the Jewish community there that uh, they would be given opportunities and that they would be able to clearly express the truth of the gospel. And, Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are back in Judges. Judges, we're going to finish up where we were covering last time on the importance of testing of our faith 
And then we're going to spend the most of the second half of the class tonight setting a, an Old Testament framework on biblical leadership. And that's important to make that distinction because a lot of people want to jump to the New Testament when you're in the Old Testament. But they didn't know anything about the New Testament back then, so that's not really the criterion. So we're going to spend a little time looking at those things, and we'll learn a few things about uh, that we can apply to leadership and the selection of leaders uh, even in our time. So we are looking at how... It's still looking at this summary section in Judges, Judges chapter 1, 1, verse 2, 3, 6, is your overview introduction, where we learn that, that the theme of Judges is going to focus on the fact that the nation is going to fall from spiritual victory uh, to spiritual defeat. And they are going to be transformed by their negative volition, their rejection of God, their rejection of truth. Literally, it's more than rejection. It is they abandon God. The language of the text is extremely strong. They abandon God, and they compromise, and the result is the nation is defeated. And then it just goes through these, these cycles deteriorating cycles. Each cycle is worse than the one before. Each leader is less competent than the one before. And we see a picture of how over a period of about 300 years, a culture is transformed as they become uh, completely influenced by the pagan culture around them. And that's exactly what we have seen in our Country. When you step back and you take a look on the broad sweep of history in the last 500 years, since uh, a couple of years ago in, in uh, 2017, we had the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So we've had 500 years, and we, have, we saw what was built on that foundation— that really reached its crowning glory in the founding documents of the United States. And we saw, and, and we see it also in the Christian civilization that is spread by the British Empire in the 19th century. Now, that doesn't mean that they did everything right. Um, nobody's claiming that. Uh, but they were building, and as each decade went by, as each a uh, century went by, there was vast improvement. And then uh, the seeds of destruction were laid starting in the uh, l- late 1500s and early 1600s in what was the Enlightenment. Actually, the Enlightenment is the first, shall we say, the first little shoots of green growth coming out of the soil of the Renaissance. And in the Renaissance and then in the, um, then in the Enlightenment, you see uh, those who are not subordinate to the authority of Scripture moving to expand and develop their understanding of the authority of, of, of the human mind and building an autonomous system to understand reality apart from revelation. And that reaches its full flowering of the Enlightenment by the end of the 19th century, and and then it collapses, it's bankrupt. Man cannot find the answers to the profound questions of life apart from revelation. The profound questions of life are, where did we come from? Where are we going? What is our purpose? Is there life after death? And if there is life after death, how do we make sure that we end up in the best place possible? Those are the, the, the profound questions. And when you attempt to answer them apart from revelation, then it just breeds a paganism. And it, and it puts a culture back into slavery. And so most of us didn't even know what postmodernism was until about 30 years ago. Uh, some people had read the terminology in relation maybe to architecture or art if they were paying attention uh, somewhat earlier than that. But actually looking back on it, we turned that corner 
from modernism to postmodernism at the beginning of the ninth of the twentieth century, uh, starting in nineteen hundred, and now postmodernism is going bankrupt, and its stepchild is um, uh, uh, social justice theory. That's the technical term, social justice theory for this new worldview. That comes from the writings of the people on that side of, of the issue. And so that is what is taking over, and it is absolute chaos, and it is uh, really a worldview that is has all of its affinities with Marxism and none of them with biblical truth. And so we have, we have turned that corner. And this is not anything new. We have different labels now, but we've gone through these same kinds of cycles over and over again in civilization uh, ever since the uh, time before the flood. And it got so evil, so horrible, that God had to destroy every human being other than the the immediate family of Noah. It happened again in a horrible way at the Tower of Babel. God judged it by scattering the languages. And it happened in different civilizations numerous times before Christ and after Christ. And it's not going to end until the Lord comes back because God is demonstrating something to all of humanity and to the angels that independence from God, no matter how moral or ethical or high-sounding the value system, it always leads to chaos and destruction and death. And no matter what else is going on, and it, it is all to demonstrate the sinfulness and the corruption of sin. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. It is teaching us about how corrupting and destructive sin is. So we go through these, these divisions, the introduction. We're about to finish that tonight. And it summarizes what is going to take place in the rest of the book. From 3-7 to 1631, we see the paganization of the leadership. That's why I'm going to take some time to talk about what God has said about leadership prior to this. Then we will have these two sort of appendices at the end of the book, which demonstrate that when a culture collapses and it is collapsing into paganism, it affects every strata of society. It doesn't just affect the leadership, it affects the people, it affects the priesthood, it affects everybody. And we, it, when we get into this kind of a situation or when any culture gets into this kind of a, of, of a situation and a circumstance, uh, it's just a mess. And everybody is impacted. The leaders that we have are, I think... Are, are flawed. Some are deeply flawed, but they're all flawed, much more so than we have seen in the past, and that is because they're the product of the same culture. And that's the same thing we're going to see as we get into an analysis of the leaders during the period of the judges, is that they're all flawed, and as we progress, we're going to see that they're more deeply flawed. And there's some significant uh, consequences uh, because of that. So that's where we are, finishing up the introduction in the first uh, six chapters, or six verses or so of, of chapter, uh, chapter three. So just to remind you, in Genesis chapter, I mean, in Judges chapter three, uh, verses one and four. God talks about the fact that now that Israel has compromised and they have failed, that God is going to use that to bring uh, discipline upon them, and it is also designed to test them in the future. Uh, he says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. The word for test is the word nasah, which is used 36 times in the Old Testament and three times in Judges, all in this, in this location. And then verse 4 says, And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So last time we went through 10 different tests, uh, in most of the 10 different points, 
but we examined out of the tenth point the tests that God brought into the life of Abraham. And just to quickly summarize what we've learned about testing is, and point number one, testing is designed to evaluate faith. It is to evaluate our, te- our faith. We get that out of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It is designed to evaluate faith, to develop faith, and to recall us to a walk with the Lord if we have not been walking with the Lord or to bring divine discipline. So there's really four purposes there. One, to evaluate our faith. And the second is to develop faith because as we're tested, if we respond biblically to to the test, then our faith is going to be strengthened and we will endure and our faith will be strengthened and that will lead to spiritual maturity. So the test evaluates that faith, demonstrates what's there, it develops our faith. If we are not walking with the Lord and we hit these tests, some of these tests, then they're designed to get our attention and some of us need to be whacked up the side of the head with a two-by-four every now and then just to get our attention. And it is to bring us back to a walk with the Lord. And sometimes it is to bring divine discipline uh, upon us. Second observation, second point, God will leave the Canaanites there in the land to test them so that they will learn to respond correctly in war. For example, we read in verse 2, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, that they were going to learn, need to learn how to fight uh, their enemies. They were going to need to learn how to trust God in the midst of the war, in the midst of the harem war that God had called uh, Israel to carry out. He has never rescinded his command to uh, kill and destroy all of the Canaanites, but he has said he's not going to remove them all because they're left there to test them and to teach the next generation how to, to fight. And ultimately, in Scripture, that means to teach them to depend upon the Lord, to learn how to pray and depend, express their uh, petitions to the Lord and to uh, force them to do this even though this isn't their inclination. Uh, third, tests are always to determine if we will obey God. That's just boiling it all down to the basics. The test is designed, are you going to obey God or not? Are you going to do what the Scripture says or not? That's what it is. Every situation, every time we have a volitional choice, how are we going to respond to somebody who cut us off in traffic? How are we going to respond to uh, a health situation? How are we going to respond to a financial situation? How are we going to respond uh, to getting flooded out of our house or something like that? How are we going to respond to just having a bad day and a lot of things don't go the way we want them to go? How do we respond to these things? We either do it the way God says to do it or we do it from the power of our sin nature. So the test is always to determine if we will walk with the Lord or not. Fourth, it is designed to develop our faith, to learn to trust God, and to grow spiritually. That's the focal point. And fifth, these tribes that surround them want to wipe them off the face of the earth. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, all the other stalactites and stalagmites want to wipe them off the face of the earth. Some things don't change. Right now we have a very similar situation. Hamas and the Arabs, they're not Palestinians. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. Uh, This is a bogus term. Uh, The term Palestine was forced upon uh, this area of the Middle East by the Emperor Hadrian, who was so frustrated with the rebellious Jews there. Uh, Hadrian came along after Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple destroyed in AD 70, and you had a second Jewish rebellion that took place between about 133 and 135, and there were about 800, seven or 800,000 Jews that were killed in that rebellion. And Hadrian was so angry about it that he 
what, one of the things that started it was he started building a Roman city in the heart of what had been Jerusalem, and he called it Aeolia Capitolina. Aeolia meaning that was a family name for Hadrian's family. Capitolina was referring to the city, and he imposed that name on it. And then after the war, instead of calling it Israel, he called it Syro-Palestine. It was sort of a play on words because Palestine sounded like Philistine, and the Philistines were Greek sea peoples, and uh, the word also had the idea possibly of uh, being related to a Greek word for wrestler. And, of course, uh, Jacob was the one who wrestled with God. So it's, it's a pun. The Greeks loved puns. And um, so that's, that's where that term came from, and it was imposed upon that land. And up until Yasser Arafat, the founder of the PLO, uh, started co-opting that term in the mid-'60s, it had always referred to, the, to a Jewish homeland and to the Jews. In fact, during World War II, there was a Jewish brigade in the British Army, a Palestinian brigade, and it was all, all Jews. So, uh, the, in fact, um, the numbers of Arabs that lived in Israel or lived in that area in the 19th century were minimal. In fact, most many travelers, and I've got this in a presentation I'm doing for the pastors on Friday morning, that in almost every decade there were travelers, French travelers, German travelers, American travelers. Mark Twain's quote is one of the most famous. That goes goes to Israel, and there's it, they talk about how barren it is, how empty it is, how there's very very few people that are living uh, living in the land, and what happened towards the end of the 19th century was as Jews were starting to get out of uh, Russia and other areas where there was anti-Semitism, the Ottomans wanted people to work. So you have this dynamic going on where the Jews are going back to the land. They're reclaiming the land very slowly. It was arduous work, and they were not farmers or land workers. They were mostly cobblers and bankers and financiers, and they had other trades. And as they're starting to uh, drain the swamps and turn some of the land into profitable agricultural land, the Ottomans wanted workers. This is a self-destructive policy of nations. Let's bring in immigrants to do the hard labor. And so they brought in Muslims. Remember, the uh, Ottomans had... uh, had um, uh, invaded into uh, into southern southeastern Europe, and so you have some of the territories in the Balkans are Muslim now, and so they were bringing in Serbians and Bosnians and others from that area. They were bringing in Egyptians, they were bringing in Greeks, they were bringing in Turks, they were bringing in all kinds of people from from these other areas because they didn't have an indigenous population that would do do labor. And so they were bringing them in, and that's the background for those who are living in um, Israel today. The Arab Muslim population, they're not pure Arab. They are a mix from all of these other other groups that, that brought them in to labor. And uh, those people you know, hate Israel, the Jews, and want to get them out just like the enemies that God left in the... Uh, time of the judges, and so this is going to uh, going to test them. So we looked last time at um, the whole issue of uh, temptation and testing, and down to, at the tenth point, as I said a minute ago, we looked or started to look at illustrations of God's testing in Israel in the Old Testament. The first example was that of Abraham, and God uh, decided to test Abraham in Genesis 22.1 and test him by doing something that was completely out of character for God to see if Abraham would still trust him. And he told Abraham he wanted, to, he wanted Abraham to take Isaac, his son, the promised seed, and to take him to Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount exists today, 
and to take him there and to uh, put him on an altar and sacrifice him. And Abraham was going to trust him because all of these tests that we talked about last time were all related to those promises God made to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you a seed and I'm going to give you this land. And so things came along that challenged whether Abraham would get the land or ever have a son. And it was all a test to see if Abraham would truly trust God. And so Abraham didn't bat an eye. He said, uh, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. And he took off for Mount Moriah with uh, uh, with Isaac. And he was about probably in his 20s or 30s. But when he got there, Isaac looked around and said, well, where's the sacrifice? We didn't bring a lamb with us. And, uh, and by that point, he's beginning to get the picture. Abraham explained it to him, tied him to the altar, and he pulled out his sacrificial knife and was inches from cutting Isaac's throat when God stayed his hand. Abraham passed the test. And the New Testament tells us that Abraham understood that if he killed Isaac, that God would bring him back from the dead because he was the one that God had told him would be the one through whom the, the, the seed promise would be given. And so his, uh, that's the, perf- the great example of faith for us. Faith is when the Word of God is more real to us than our emotions, than our experiences, than our opinions and the opinions of all the people around us. Faith is depending upon God because God said it. And Abraham understood that he was looking for something in the future, a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, according to Hebrews 11.10. Now, the next time we have an example of God testing Israel is in Exodus 15.25, where we read, Then he, he, that's Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. That is, God tested Israel. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 15, and we're going to walk through two or three chapters here in Exodus where God is going to test uh, the Exodus generation, those who came out from Egypt, to see if they are going to obey him. So let's just sort of work our way through these. We're not going to go through verse by verse through every chapter, but we're going to hit the high points. And so it's important to turn to Exodus 15.1. The context is that in chapter 14, God parted the waters of the Red Sea and that the entire nation of Israel, two to three um, uh, Two to three million of them are coming across the dried bed of the Red Sea. It's dried out. It's not just a miracle of parting the waters. It's a miracle of drying out the soil underneath so that they could walk across and not get wet, not get stuck in the mud or anything of that nature. And this parting must have been extremely wide because to get that many people across, it might have been as wide as 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 maybe a half a mile or maybe a mile. I, I don't know. I haven't done the uh, mathematics on it. But to get that many people across in a relatively short amount of time, then it would have to be... Uh, quite wide, and so they made it across, and then then God uh, had a, the pillar of fire behind them that held back the Egyptian army, and then the Egyptians came after them. But once they got into the into the trap that is into the middle of the Red Sea with the walls of water on each side, then God collapsed the water, and the Egyptian army, their chariot corps, everything was was destroyed. All of their top military leaders. Everything is gone. I don't know if Pharaoh went. There's, no, there's a point at which the text goes, Pharaoh did this, Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh and his army, and then all of a sudden it's just his army. And that's when they start pursuing them through the Red Sea. Now there's a, a one place in the Psalms that mentions Pharaoh going into the Red Sea. It could be poetic, and it could be just talking about Pharaoh as the representative of his army. There's no indication of a Pharaoh being wiped out like that. 
dying like that in in the record that we know of in Egyptian history right now, but it's not necessary. What happened in that event with those uh, ten plagues absolutely destroyed the infrastructure uh, even if you define the infrastructure the way our current president is defining the infrastructure, uh, because that includes everything that you can possibly imagine, uh, he wiped, it was all wiped out uh, by, the, uh, by these plagues so that you don't, we don't see Egypt mentioned again as a power for 500 years in the Old Testament. And so as a result of that, Israel has seen this incredible victory at the end at the end of chapter 14 we read thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses now that's a, an important phrase to pay attention to they feared the Lord and the way this is structured it seems like believing the Lord is a consequence of fearing the Lord we'll come back to that later so they feared the Lord, and that means more than ju- that's not being afraid. That is recognizing the authority of God, respecting it, and recognizing that when God speaks, you have to ask how high on the way up. Okay, you have to, you're, you're in completely oriented to his authority. Unfortunately, it doesn't last long. But what happens in chapter 15, uh, down to uh, the passage that we're looking at, which is in uh, down in 22, that whole section from 1 to 21 is a song of praise to God for delivering them. So they are at the high point, the emotional high point. Can you imagine how they must have felt as they stand there watching God destroy the enemy? They are more excited than... Uh, any group of fans watching their home team win the Super Bowl, they were just uh, beside themselves, and they just have this great victory celebration for the Lord. And then in um, uh, in this section, it starts off where Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he's thrown into the sea. And then he says, the Lord is my strength and my song. That's what I wanted to focus on. He, there's a recognition, God is this, our strength. And then because he is their strength, they will sing this song of praise to God. And he has become my salvation. Now, that's not salvation for eternity. That's deliverance from what could have was appeared to be certain death and if not death then then slavery and then in verse 11 and 12 as part of the song Moses says who is like you O Lord among the gods among the Elohim remember our study when we talked about the angelic revolt that this term Elohim is a generic term for gods and it is applied to the angels and the fallen angels, because all of the angels are called the sons of Elohim, B'nai Ha Elohim, or B'nai Elohim, or B'nai Elim, but it is always related that way. And then we looked at several Psalms that pointed out that this, this council of the angels that still uh, meets in heaven, we see it in Job 1, Job 2, other other Psalms, and that the angels are referred to as the Elohim, and these are the ones, according to Deuteronomy 32, the fallen angels are the ones that have, uh, that are the, impersonate the gods of the, of the heathen. And I quoted to you a passage from uh, Milton's Paradise Lost a couple of weeks ago where he had the theological insight to name the fallen angels the names of all the pagan deities, uh, Moloch and Asherah and Baal and all all of these. So I wanted to point this out in this psalm. Uh, Moses is saying, who's like you among the gods, among all the angels? Because these aren't other gods as God is. He's unique. Yahweh Elohim is unique. He is the creator God of all of the angels. 
And he says, who is like you, glorious in holiness, in your uniqueness, in your distinctiveness. That's what uh, holy means. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And then we come down to verse 15, verse 22 in chapter 15. So Moses brought Israel uh, from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur as they are traveling probably south to southeast in the uh, Sinai Peninsula. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So they probably had water with them that they were carrying. Not, it doesn't say they're going three days without water, but they're running out of water, and they've gone three days, and they have not been able to resupply. And three million people, two and a half, three million people can drink a lot of water. And so you can imagine how thirsty they're becoming, and when people get thirsty, uh, they start uh, grumbling and complaining and griping, and they are putting the pressure on Moses. And they come to an area where the springs are there. There's water, but it's bitter water. It's Mara. Mara's Hebrew word for bitter, and that's the name they have for these springs. It was probably because of this that that name was attached to these springs. And when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. Verse 24, and the people complained against Moses. Moses is the most humble man in the Bible. That's what Numbers says. He's humble because he recognizes he's under the authority of God, and he's submitted to the authority of God. That's what humility is. Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death. He was obeying God to go to the cross. So Moses is uh, is catching all of the flack from everybody. They're blaming him. They're in rebellion against him. And uh, they want, what are, what are we going to drink? So he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he was to cast that tree into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, that is God, and he tested them. What's he doing? He's testing their faith. Do you have faith? Are you going to trust me above your senses? You come to this, you're running out of water, you're going to trust me to provide water, you come to a, uh, an oasis, but the waters are bitter, so are you going to trust me to provide water for you? And they, of course, failed, failed that test. Verse 26, we read God applying the principle to them. He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. What does he say? He says, do what's right, listen to the commandments, listen to the teaching, keep the statutes, then God will do something. He says, I will put none of the diseases on you which have brought which I have brought on the Egyptians. So that's not talking about just every disease, the colds, the viruses, the run of the mill things. This is talking about the plagues that God brought on Egypt. Those specific things. I'm not going to put any of those on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. One of the reasons I say that is every now and then Every five or six years, somebody new comes along, discovers the Old Testament, discovers this verse, and connects it to the dietary laws and says, see, if you have a diet that follows the diet of basically what would the Jews eat, eat in the Sinai, then you will be healthy and you won't have any diseases. And everybody gets all excited about it, but they haven't read the text very well because it doesn't have anything to do with health doesn't have anything to do with learning how to cook the food uh, properly. And that's always what you get in these books. I remember one time telling somebody about that about 20 years ago, and they were so excited about some book that came out, and I said, well, give it to me, let me read it. And I read the forward, and that's exactly what he's saying. But in Acts chapter 10, God lowers this sheet to Peter, and he says, it's all clean now. You can eat it all. You can eat the scallops and you can eat the shrimp and the lobster and the crawfish and the pigs and everything else. It's all clean. Now, God didn't give him a cookbook. He didn't give him instructions on how to properly uh, 
skin and uh, eviscerate all of the different animals and how to properly prepare the meat and refrigerate it and everything else. It had nothing whatsoever to, to do with its health value. And so God is making a statement here that if you obey me, this won't happen because I'm not going to have to bring discipline and judgment on you for your rebelliousness. Verse 27, then they came to Elim, the next uh, oasis where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters and they journeyed from Elim. This is the second test that comes up in chapter 16. They journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. It's not sin. It's not the desert where everybody was sinning. That is, it's, it's the root of the word Sinai, S-I-N-A-I, Sinai. Okay, so it was Sin. Uh, they come to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses. Moses is catching their negative, bitter, angry attitudes all of the time. And now they're just saying, oh, that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Why didn't God just kill us? I mean, they are really depressed and discouraged and upset. No faith in God at all, but he's just testing them again. And uh, they said, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly by hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Every day there's a test to trust God to provide their what? daily bread. Where do we hear that phrase? Our Lord picks it up in the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 5. Give us this day our daily bread that we're to trust God day, day by day to provide for us. And so, uh, but what's the point? Whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So that's uh, that's the purpose of that test, is to walk in that instruction. Now, we're going to skip over to Deuteronomy 8. And here we get another interpretation via Moses, but it's from God on what was going on in this situation. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, we're going to be in and out of Deuteronomy a couple of times tonight before it's all over with because Deuteronomy is the background for most of what happens in the rest, rest of the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy 8, it begins in verse 1, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Now remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' last message to the nation before he is going to go up on Mount Nebo and God is going to take, take him. And Moses will die on Mount Nebo. So this is his last word and testimony, as it were, uh, to, to the nation. And he is reminding them of everything that God has said. So it's sort of a summary of the law, summary of all the things that God has told them about. Because after Moses goes up on Mount Nebo and dies... Then Joshua is in command, and Joshua is going to take them across the Jordan River, and they're going to enter into the land of Israel and start taking it away from the, from the Canaanites. So he, he says you're going to go in. If you're going to live and possess the land and enjoy it, you have to observe the law. Now, the land's yours, but you can't enjoy it unless you're obedient. And that's the same thing that's true for all of history Israel has the title deed to that land by God. Now, God also told, that's, that's due to the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. But the Mosaic covenant said, when you go into the land, these are the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then I'm going to kick you out of the land until you learn to obey the rules. And then when you walk with me and depend upon me, then you will enjoy all the benefits of the land. So it isn't that God came along and, and after they rejected Jesus that God took, took them out of the land and said, well, I'm going to give this to somebody else. 
that that it was a distortion of a passage uh, in the Gospels that was God was saying to I mean Christ was saying to that generation the leaders of that generation that if you do this then I will take the land from you and give it to another nation now the church is not another nation we are not a nation he was saying he was going to take it away from the nation of Israel at that time and give it to another nation of Israel that comes along later uh, later in history. But the purpose that Moses talks about in 8.2 is what happened in those 40 years in the wilderness. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, that is, teach you to be uh, submissive to God's authority. Test, how did he do it? By testing them. He humbled them by testing them. That's how you should understand the participle there. To know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the tests are determined if they would obey God and trust God and grow, grow spiritually. Now the next few verses, he says, uh, Moses says, so he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. So everything that was happening in the, in the wilderness was a t- testing time. Every day was a testing moment. And God was testing them and teaching them. And the purpose for all these tests was to teach them to depend upon God. And this test was that they needed to learn that man shall not live by bread alone. You've heard that somewhere before, I think. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And that word there, anah, is translated humble, uh, can also be afflict or oppress because what happens through the affliction or the oppression is that they learn to submit to God's authority. So this, this helps us understand God's purpose for testing. And then one more In Deuteronomy 13.3, which we'll come back to when we get to the end of this lesson tonight, he refers to the fact that there are going to be dreamers of dreams and prophets who are coming along and they're going to say this and they're going to say that and they're going to perform miracles and they're going to predict the future and it's going to come true and they're going to have signs and wonders and they're actually going to heal people and God says it's to test you to see if you're going to trust me as opposed to the fact that that this person came along and actually truly healed somebody. Now we get a lot of people in certain movements that claim to be healing people and people claim to be healed and one of the mistakes that I think non-charismatics make is to say well you know you, you that was just a fake out. You really didn't get healed. Well according to this verse these fakers are actually going to come along and heal people. And it's to test you. Is depending upon God and His Word more real to you than your experience? And so God says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you willing to trust God even though somebody comes along and actually heals somebody or let's put it in the middle of the tribulation after the, wit- the two witnesses are been uh, killed and then they come back from the dead and then you have, or excuse me, you have the Antichrist and he's killed and he comes back from the dead and everybody's going to say, oh, it must be God, stamp of approval on this leader. And it's a test to see if you're going to follow what the Word of God says or whether you're going to follow the experience of seeing somebody healed, seeing some miracle, which is validated only by the accuracy of the truth that is taught by that person. If that person, the text, that, that passage goes on to say, if that person teaches something that is contrary to the law of Moses, then you will know that, that they are a fake, they're a fraud. Now, they may have actually healed somebody, 
But they're a fraud because what they say is more important than what they do. And so you have to look at that. So when we, to wrap up all of that, was my 11th point was just as God left enemies inside the land to be a source of temptation or testing to Israel, God has left us with our very own little sin nature that's just as active now as it was before we were saved to test us to see if we're going to learn to obey the Lord or not. And so we have to deal with that every single day, just as the Israelites, after Judges 2, have to deal with the presence of the Canaanites every single day. So what happens? In Judges 3, 6, we read, And they took, that is the Israelites, took their daughters to be their wives. Their daughters refer to, refers to the Canaanites. So they are going to intermarry with the Canaanites. They take their daughters to be their wives, and they gave uh, their daughters to their sons. In other words, so the Jews are giving their daughters to marry uh, men who are Canaanites, and their sons are marrying women. So it's complete intermarriage working both ways, and this is going to uh, just cause the the Israelites to completely assimilate uh, to the Canaanites. The result is what we see in verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what did I tell you it means when we read this passage, this type of language in the Old Testament, that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord? About 98% of the time, the next sentence says something about idolatry. So evil... If you were going to define evil, evil is very simple. It is anything that's related to substituting something for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for obedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that, that's what happens in the garden. Eve listens to the serpent, and she's obeying the serpent instead of God, and that's evil because that's idolatry. She is basically worshiping something other than the God of the Bible. So that's the core of what evil is. So evil can manifest itself in morality. It can uh, manifest itself in a lot of religions that focus on good things and rituals and giving to the poor and helping uh, the underprivileged and uh, feeding the, the, the poor and healing the sick and all of these kinds of wonderful things, but it doesn't validate their evil theology, which is a rebellion against God. So that those are all forms of idolatry. So the result is the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned the Lord their God, and enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Asherah. So this is where we are. And one thing we have to remember is from Deuteronomy 32.17, whenever we see these false gods mentioned, we have to remember this, that these false gods, the word God is Elohim, but they're demon gods. They are not, uh, they're not just some something made out of wood or some image made out of stone or metal, there is a demon behind that. These these false gods are demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says they sacrifice to demons, that demon Elohim. They sacrifice to demons, not to God, to God's Elohim. So it's clearly the text is putting demon and Elohim together uh, they are false gods to demons, to demon Elohims they did not know, to new gods, new Elohims, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Always keep that in mind. This is the spiritual background of what's happening in Judges, that they are worshiping demonism. 
whether it's overt demonism, which I think is just a, uh, a camouflage, the church of Satan and everything else. Some of the worst demonism going on in this country is happening by people who, are, who have rejected the existence of God and rejected everything in the Bible, and they are offering a, completely, a complete alternative to everything that Scripture says. They are, want to substitute a different worldview. Now, that brings us to uh, the end of the opening section, and, and we're going to get started in the next section on leadership. And I've got a good bit to cover in terms of leadership, but I'm going to go ahead and start it because verse 7 introduces our first leader. So we have to understand a few things about what the Bible teaches about standards for leaders. What does the Bible teach about standards for leaders? And the first point is that the leaders in Judges do not fit the biblical standards for leaders in the Old Testament. And that's an important point because when you get a culture that is enmeshed in paganism, everybody at every strata in that culture is infected with paganism. And so the leaders that you get are going to be flawed because they are not going to come out of it following the uh, guidelines for the selection of elders or deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1. They are not going to be models of integrity. They don't even fit the models of Exodus chapter 18, which is when Moses selects leaders uh, for Israel. They are, and that's going to be part of the difference that we see going on here. So the question that we should ask ourselves is that as we look at this, at this panorama of these judges and how they fail to meet uh, the standards set forth in Scripture, what does that tell us? That's the question. Why is God telling us this? Why is God telling us all about these people. And if we look at Jephthah and we look at Gideon to a large degree, we look at Jephthah to is even worse and Samson's the worst. Jephthah and Samson don't have a whole lot said about them that's positive. Samson has nothing said about him that's positive. But you get to Hebrews chapter 11 and they are listed there not because they're great examples of spiritual maturity. They're there because they, at some critical point in time in their life, they trusted God. They had an act of faith. But God is not putting his stamp of approval on everything about them. He is not elevating them and saying, see, you need to go live your life like Samson, or you need to go live your life like Jephthah or like Gideon or Deborah and Barak. They are not here to give us examples of how they should live. They are telling us what happened, and they illustrate the the failures of a culture that assimilates uh, to paganism. So this is what God is teaching here. It's a very negative message in this book, but, but we need to learn it because we're living in it. This is where we are today. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 18. I just want to point out a few things, this will, and then we'll come back and uh, look at some other things next time. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, the scenario is that Moses' father-in-law is realizes that Moses is trying to do everything and that he needs to create uh, a team of leaders that can handle a lot of his circumstances and situations uh, without him having to deal with every little problem and every, every little issue that comes along. So in Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 20, the, these, this is the advice of Jethro, his father-in-law. He starts off in verse 19. He says, listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. You are to represent the people to God. 
And then he begins, And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. That's, that's Moses' job description. He represents the people to God, and he, he's going to function. In that way, he's functioning like a priest. He's functioning like a priest in giving them instructions of, on the law. And then he goes on, and in verse 21 he says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So you have these four criteria. Uh, The first one is they are to be able men. Now, the description of this in the Hebrew is, it, it's, it, it says a lot more than what we read when we read able men. It's a very strong Hebrew expression. Uh, the NET translation translates it as uh, capable men. They're men who know how to get things done. They're men who have, done, have accomplished things already in their life. They're not necessarily... Older men, they're going to be between the ages of probably 35 and 60, and they are already being recognized as someone with leadership potential, as an influential person in the community. They've lived life, they've had some failures, and they've had some successes, and they've learned from their failures. I remember in a church where I candidated uh, some 30-plus years ago, that as I was having a uh, phone conference call with the leaders in the church, uh, three of these men were all entrepreneurs, and one of them, who was really sharp, worked with organizations to develop leaders within their organizations. And the second question they asked me was that he asked me was, "Tell me about your failures. How have you failed, and what did you learn?" That was a wise question because we learn more from our failures than our successes. And so that's what they're looking for is those who have failed, uh, those who understand the difficulties and the issues that people face in life, and there's someone you could go to for advice. And the phrase here is the phrase anshi chayil. Anchi means men, and haril is often translated something like valor. But it's often translated someone who is strong or someone who has power. Two verses that use it in those ways are 2 Samuel 22:33 In David's uh, psalm, he says, God is my strength and power. That's haril. It has to do with power, somebody who's a strong, solid leader. Habakkuk 3.19, the Lord God is my strength. So in both of these passages emphasizes that Chayil, in some sense, uh, comes from God. And he is, the, he is the one who is our strength. It is a word that is used to, uh, when it's describing men in some context, it means they are valiant warriors. They are strong. They are prepared for war, and they are good fighters. And you find that in uh, Deuteronomy 3.18, 2 Kings 24.16, and Jeremiah 48.14. In Exodus 18, in both 20, verse 21, and then later in verse 25, when it simply says Moses chose able men, the same phrase, uh, it means those who are able to lead the people, able to judge, uses the same word that we find in the book of Judges. And 1 Kings one fifty two says it's someone who is righteous in their behavior. So that's, that's part of this. He is a man of strength with po- uh, leadership potential. And before we close, I just want to talk about the counterpart of this. This is really interesting in doing a word study on this. Because we all uh, are familiar, many of us are familiar of the uh, praise of the godly woman in Proverbs 31. And this is the feminine f- form of this phrase. And it's, it's the same phrase. It's translated uh, 
uh, a virtuous wife. Now, that's in the New King James, and the concept of virtue for us is a little different from what it was in the 16th or 17th century when this was translated. The um, NET translates it, who can find a wife of noble uh, character? And it really describes a woman who is extremely capable. She can get things done. She can run the household, handle all of the business of the household. Uh, If it's a larger household, she can run the estate. Uh, It has the idea that comes across from, uh, if you go back five or 600 years, late Middle Ages, early modern period, Uh, the role of a true uh, aristocrat of integrity, where you have the lord of the manor, and the lord of the manor oversees the village, and it's his responsibility to take care of all the villagers. He probably employs most of the villagers, and if people are sick, he is going to send people to take care of them. Uh, If someone dies, he will visit the family, uh, it looks at the village as as the extended family of the uh, of the nobleman, and so this is a lot of that kind of idea. So the uh, wife is one who can run the estate and take care of people and provide for people, and she is wise and helpful, and that is how it is used in Proverbs. Uh, 31.10, as well as in Pro- Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife, and that's the word excellent that's translated in the New King James Version is this word, hail. an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Uh, that's translated in the NET as a noble wife is the crown of her husband. So first of all, this is a man who is capable. He is a man who has integrity. He is a man who can get knows how to get things done, and he understands the problems and issues that people have, and he is able to give them guidance and leadership. So this is the first qualification of a leader that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and we'll come back to look at the next three uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, issues in the Scripture and how they relate to us and our understanding of things and to be able to apply these blueprints of leadership not only to the time of the judges to evaluate the leaders in the time of the judges but also to evaluate uh, our uh, our own lives, our own leadership, and uh, those within our, our congregation. So, Father, we pray that you'd give us guidance, wisdom, and skill in applying these things. In Christ's name, amen.